Have you ever brought up a concern in your church only to be labeled as an enemy of the faith? Do your leaders exhibit a troubling lack of humility? Are you sure you would recognize spiritual abuse if you saw it? I'm really glad that you're here with me to investigate how hard it would be to break free from the kind of spiritual abuse that you'd find in a cult like the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. We're back with part two of Leaving the FLDS. This week, we're talking about power, control, and abuse. I believe that it's every Christian's calling to be a different kind of PI, not a private investigator like me, but a person of impact. Stick around because we'll talk about how you can do just that with skills that you've already got. This is season four, episode 12. Our book this week is The Witness War Red by Rebecca Musser. We were starting this story last week, and so you know if you've listened that Rebecca is an author, an activist, a mom, and she was the 19th wife of Rulon Jeffs. That's Warren Jeffs' dad. We found some great takeaways last week, so make sure you go back and listen if you haven't yet. But you can follow a link in the show notes, and then you can get all caught up on Rebecca's growing up years, the ones before Warren Jeff took control of the cult. The DS prophet grew progressively weaker as the year 2000 approached. The cult was really hyper-focused on the end of time happening in 2000, and Warren preached that New Year's Eve that catastrophes were about to break out everywhere. Of course, they didn't, so Warren gave his people a new revelation. God was mercifully giving them more time to repent. They spent a lot of that time continuing to illegally obtain government benefits. They believed they were doing a noble and even a godly thing in harming the government because they saw it as corrupt and worldly. But in reality, taking all these benefits that they really weren't entitled to was a way for the leaders of the cult to subsidize what they were doing. And at the same time, they could sow paranoia among their followers, and that would keep them loyal out of the fear they had of the rest of the world from the teachings that they had always been inundated with. None of them was really sure what was going on with their leader because Warren made sure that they wouldn't know, also that he could maintain control. To distract the flock, Warren began performing weddings at a very rapid pace. Eventually, as all the women in their late teens and early 20s were getting married off, drastic action had to be taken. The brides had to get younger and younger. Some of these marriages were arranged in order to put rebellious girls kind of in their place. Older, powerful men who might be threats to Warren's authority were pacified with getting these new young brides. Younger men, they weren't getting anything but harassed and even pushed out of the cult. Warren continued to find other ways to increase his control. Cult members for a long, long time had been encouraged to donate their homes to the church. They were told that it was more of an act of obedience, but it was really a way for the cult to control them more. Now, if these people openly disagreed with Warren, they might find themselves without a place to live. 
Rulon's health was continuing to decline, and he passed away on September 8th of 2002. Now, Warren's power had no limits, and there's no church in the world that should have anybody with unlimited power. Even though only one of Rulon's wives was actually Warren's mother, it's still pretty creepy that he chose to marry several of his father's widows. Some of the cult members saw this as normal, and others, like Rebecca, knew that this was not a godly thing to do. She simply wanted to stay single, but of course she knew it wasn't going to be her choice. She just prayed that if she had to marry, it would be to someone who was at least a friend. Someone like a young man she had gotten to know named Ben. And they truly were just friends until the day he kissed her. Then their lives completely unraveled. Warren interrogated Rebecca with very, very vulgar and graphic questions. And Ben was told he was no longer a trusted member of the community. Rebecca was given one week to get married. And when she protested, Warren simply said to her, I will break you. And to me, that sounded an awful lot like Paige Patterson of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary when he said, break her down in response to a woman who had reported sexual harassment. Now, I am in no way calling the Southern Baptist Convention a cult, not at all. But what I am saying is that leaders who are not humble, who are more interested in power than in serving people, they have a tendency to say and do things that are not Christ-like at all. And we need to always be on the lookout for that. Warren's threat pushed Rebecca in a direction she never thought she would dare to go. She quickly began to formulate a plan that would get her away from Warren and everything else that she ever knew. She literally scaled a fence meant to keep her and her sister wives in check and then raced to meet Ben. Together, they left for Oregon, where one of Rebecca's brothers went to live after he had been forced out of the cult. Warren immediately launched a massive search for her, telling people that he only wanted to save her soul. What he really wanted was to control what she did with all of the knowledge she had of the cult's inner workings since she had been married to Rulon. And this is exactly why the cult's teachings had always emphasized that the leaders could never be questioned that to do so meant you were risking your very salvation. That kind of spiritual abuse can exist in any religious group, not just cults. Any mainstream religious group can have someone that pushes the envelope in this direction. I just want to be sure that all of us listening know that if leaders claim that their teachings and their actions cannot be questioned, it's time to think about finding a new faith community. Rebecca was hearing from some of her siblings that Warren was becoming even more strict with all of his followers. Male leaders began disappearing as Warren grasped for total control. Others were excommunicated and sent away, including several of Warren's brothers. Several FLDS women who had escaped like Rebecca were interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. They talked about widespread sexual abuse among the children of the FLDS. And even though Rebecca had experienced it, she knew that there were good people in the group, people who were just fooled by evil leaders. And that's why it can be so hard for people in these situations to leave. So instead of wondering, oh my goodness, why don't they just leave? 
Stop and put yourself in their shoes. They cling to the good times because that helps them have the ability to stay during the bad times. As people continued to disappear, it was hard to know if they'd been reassigned somewhere to atone for their sins or if they had undergone blood atonement. Now, the blood atonement doctrine says that, quote, eternal sins, which they say include apostasy, which is abandoning church doctrine, these sins weren't atoned for by Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's a problem. The mainstream Mormon church says that this is only a theoretical principle, and it's not practiced. So anyway, these so-called eternal sins required an additional blood sacrifice. Yours, if you're the one who committed this eternal sin. This belief even influenced Utah's capital punishment laws, which include death by firing squad. Yes, that is actually still legal if the state is unable to obtain the right drugs for lethal injection. Since things were getting so out of hand in Utah, the FLDS quietly bought and developed land near El Dorado, Texas. That location had the benefit of being both remote and having a local minimum age for marriage of just 14 years old. Now, any of you that have a 14-year-old, can you even imagine them being ready for marriage? Rebecca was worried about an aunt who had disappeared, so she called the authorities in El Dorado to see if they had any information about this woman being in El Dorado. Local authorities told her that they had tried to make contact with and welcome the group, and they noticed that the women always stayed indoors if any outsiders came calling. Relatives of Rebecca, who had also left the cult, were considering cooperating with law enforcement to hold Warren Jeffs accountable for his many, many abuses against his followers. Authorities sent Rebecca pictures that had been taken from a plane to see if she recognized anyone. That started her on a journey that would eventually land Warren Jeffs in prison. We'll talk about that next week. Cults have always fascinated me. From the outside looking in, it's so easy to wonder how people could believe some of what we would see as really out there kind of teachings. Now, some people are born into the cult, and so they don't know anything else. But the others, a lot of them are searching for meaning or fulfillment or simply community. And they're willing to go along with those teachings, even if they're contrary to scripture, to find those things. Now, as believers, instead of shunning people that are different from us or are following a belief system that we know to be false, let's try to engage with these people. If you know someone that your child is friends with their child or you go to school together or they're on a sports team together or a dance team or music lessons, see if you can start a conversation. The only way that we're going to be able to reach them with correct teaching is if they know that we care about them as people. So build those relationships and you can be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. Now, if you haven't seen the movie Jesus Revolution, I highly recommend it. It shows a clash of cultures that could have been a disaster, but because a handful of people were willing to look past external differences to share the love of God, an entire generation, and, and really our entire country was changed. The Bible passage that I want us to investigate this week 
and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It's John 8, verses 3 through 11. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. When I've listened to this passage being taught, the emphasis is usually on Jesus' interaction with the woman or how he puts the Pharisees in their place. But I want us to focus on verses 6 and 7. So picture this scene. A crowd has once again gathered to hear Jesus teach, and at the temple, no less. The place where the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were used to being in charge, in the spotlight. So they tried to trap Jesus. They weren't interested in upholding the law, and they certainly weren't thinking about how they could help the woman live a God-honoring life. They wanted to take down someone they saw as a threat to their power and control. They were committing spiritual abuse. When Jesus didn't take their bait, they continued to ask over and over whether the woman should be stoned or not. When he finally gave his famous answer that the one who was without sin could cast the first stone, they simply walked away. They could not accept corrective teaching. Now remember, they were at the temple, their turf, but they were willing to walk away rather than even consider that Jesus could be right and they could be wrong. If you have leaders like that in your church or at your workplace or in any type of relationship, I want to ask you to check out links to the resources that I've put in the show notes. If you are experiencing spiritual abuse, I want you to have information that will help you address it. I'm certainly not an expert, but you can reach out to me as well, and I'll do what I can to put you in touch with the help that you'll need. And if you've dealt with a situation like this, I would love to hear from you and learn how you handled it. Shoot an email to lori at theunlovelytruth.com. That's L-O-R-I at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I've put all the ways you can contact me in the show notes. And if you like this episode, make sure you check out part one of this short series if you haven't listened to it yet, or follow the links in the show notes to episodes that are similar. You can also help someone begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share the episode. And if you'll subscribe and give me a five-star rating and a nice review, the algorithm will take it from there and it'll put this podcast out in front of more people that we can reach with the gospel. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.
Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.